welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. Today we're going to be talking about the connection between myth and creativity, and I have a special guest with me, a fellow mythologist and myth worker, Allison Steger. Allison is a mythologist, author, lecturer, and workshop leader. She has a master's degree in mythological studies from Pacifica Graduate Institute, and she's the founder and director of Mythic Stories Education, a company that provides after-school enrichment classes on myth to schools nationwide and also offers tutoring to college applicants who want to write their entrance essays by taking a mythological look at their lives. Allison regularly ponders the lessons of myth on her blog, Mythic Stories, and she's currently working on her first book titled Mythic Creativity, What Myths Can Teach Us About Our Creative Lives. Allison is passionately interested in the intersection between myth and creativity, innovation, and culture, and I'm really excited to have her here on the program with us today. So welcome, Allison. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm so pleased to be here. Yeah. Now, Allison is a fellow uh, associate of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, too, so we are, our work has a lot in common. I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what you're going to pull out for us today. Why don't we just start with a little background about the connections that you see between myth and creativity? Well, when I first started studying myth, which was sometime around 15 years ago or so, and I discovered Campbell's work, I was approaching the work from the perspective of being a fiction writer. And I loved myth. I loved reading myth and the way that Campbell talked about it because he did such a brilliant job of looking at myth in a literary way. And that really appealed to me personally as a reader and a writer. So as I started to study myth, I looked at it from that lens, so to speak, and I was very interested to see what sort of insights I might learn about how to live my life more creatively and how to enhance my creative work by reading myth. And it became very clear to me very quickly that there was a lot in any myth that I could look at that might teach me a little bit better about how to make my work deeper, make my work resonate with people that read it or that consumed it. And I thought that I could look at just about any myth and find something that it could teach me about my creative life. And it was after I'd been accumulating these stories for some time that I started sharing them outside with others. So when you talk about living more creatively, uh, are are you talking about enhancing creativity for people who are, like yourself, writers or artists, or is this a more broad definition of creative life? Well, my approach at first was uh, for people that are specifically self-identifying as artists, but the deeper that I got into the work, the more I began to realize how much each person has to offer, and so many people are fearful of sharing that part of themselves, and they, they just dismiss it by saying, oh, well, I'm not a creative person, that doesn't come naturally to me, and I, in my personal opinion, I find that very tragic, because each one of us has a unique perspective on the world through the life experiences that we've had and through the uh, people that we've met in, in, a, in a pattern that no one else has experienced, 
And if we go through our lives and we are the only one that has had those experiences in that way, we have a very unique perspective that if we don't communicate it, it's lost forever. So I want to reach out to everyone. And I particularly want to reach out to people that think that they don't have anything to offer or (laughs) that their perspective is not meaningful because they don't self-identify as some amazing writer or artist like a Van Gogh or Shakespeare or whatever. They've got something in them that nobody else has, and I want to bring that out into the world. Right. I like to talk to people about their creative lives. I think it's really, really important right. that all of that not be lost. I totally so. agree with you, and that makes me think of two things. I mean, one is this uh, quote from Martha Graham, which you're probably familiar about, and I'll just roughly paraphrase it because I can't remember all of her beautiful words, but she basically said, exactly what you just said. All of us have a unique perspective and way of expressing that and that our job is simply to believe in that and to bring that into expression that the judgment of its value or necessity or whatever isn't is not ours to make. That seems to be a thread that, that really wove through Campbell's work also despite his close friendships with serious artists and authors, um, I have always found a lot in his Follow Your Bliss that suggests that he's about personal truth in whatever form makes sense. I agree. And I I think that sometimes people get confused by the phrase Follow Your Bliss because it doesn't necessarily mean do the thing that makes you the happiest. It means do the thing that you're meant to do in this life. And to me, it's the same message as what I just said. It's you have this unique perspective. You're the only one that has it. And if you die and it dies with you, it's lost forever. And that's, it's not always an easy thing to follow your bliss. You know, you have to deal with yourself and work toward your own individuation if we want to use Jungian language. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have to, to allow yourself to do things that may be very difficult. So that's you know, part of what my mission is, is just to, because I've, I've met so many people that have, Felt, well, what I have to offer isn't good enough, or it has no value, or it's not as good as, in my perception, as someone else's that I admire, and it's tragic. So, and I keep, I'm finding that as I read myth, you know, and I use my own gifts to look at the myth and kind of sit with it for a while, that insights just start to bubble up, and I, that's the beauty of myth, is that it's holding all of this ancient wisdom, and because people don't study myth the way they used to, you know, I'm sitting with that, and it's allowing me to dig up things that maybe haven't been looked at in a long time. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that you worked with that I've seen online is an essay that you wrote about Hephaestus, one of the Greek gods, and what he shows us as a model for creativity. And since we're kind of already touching here on both the theme of how important it is for all of us to engage with our own creative expression and the difficulty in there this seems like a good time maybe to bring him into the conversation absolutely Um, absolutely so let me can i share a little bit about Hephaestus and his story with you before we kind of dig into the metaphor that that his story is holding um so just for all of your listeners Mm -hmm. he is the greek god of the forge um so he is responsible for creating many famous heroes' weapons and jewels, and, you know, he's always the creator of all of this beautiful, beautiful metalwork throughout all of our Greek myths. And his story is, like many myths, as you know, 
myths can be very tricksy in a way. They don't always want to stand still and, and stay the same. And, and this, this is very true for him as well. His story is changeable. And in some cases, he, in one version of, of his myth, he is the only child of Hera who has him as a retaliation against Zeus for giving birth to Athena by himself. And in another version of his story, he is the son of Zeus and Hera. But the one thing that is in common with his story that happens to him very shortly after his birth is that he is cast out of Mount Olympus. He is literally thrown off the mountain to fall down uh, and land on the earth. And he is the only god that manages to come back and gets reinstated on Mount Olympus. And... So either he was thrown off by Hera because he was born lame, or he was thrown off and that caused his lameness. But either way, he is the ugliest and uh, the lamest, or the only lame, non-perfect of the Greek gods. So he is, has this sort of interesting contradiction inherent in his character in which he has this ugliness and this lameness, but he also is able to create all this beauty and these beautiful tools and jewels and, you know, swords and things. So you've got this sort of interesting dichotomy going on in his story already. And the thing that's a little bit interesting, I think, about Hephaestus is if we look back and we look at Greek culture at the time that this was a living myth, he stands in parallel to all of the metal workers who were human at that time because the Greek aristocrats although they admired and enjoyed the products of metal workers, you know, they needed the swords and the jewels and all these beautiful things, they didn't respect them very much. They respected a character like Apollo, who is perfectly beautiful and intelligent, and even though they wanted the product, they did not appreciate the hard work that went into metallurgy at all. Mm-hmm. So these, he was sort of looked down on as, as part of the pantheon, right? Mm-hmm. So he's got this sort of disrespect thing going on. Uh, among the culture at the time, right? So he's got, what, the way I see it at least, he's, he has a lot of brokenness in him. I mean, not, not only literal brokenness in his body and ugliness, but he's got this sort of disrespected thing going on. And to me, what I enjoy about his story is it teaches me a little bit about how we can use the things about ourselves that are broken to inform our creative lives. So this is why I feel, as I was saying before, that, okay, we have we all have things to offer, and mm-hmm. maybe we're afraid or we don't want to think of ourselves creatively. And I think that all of those things that are um, pulling us away from it are the things that can make our creativity even better. Does that make sense? Yeah. In a way that, that it's, it's the things in us that are broken that can make our art even stronger. Can you give an example of that, maybe from your own work or someone that well, you have I, I coached? Guess, I guess, uh, yes, I can. Uh, I guess when I look at my own life, I see the things that make me stronger as an artist are some of the difficult things I went through when I was younger. I had a very, I came from a very broken home and a very difficult childhood, and those things bring story to me. I think. Mm-hmm. You know, and if I hadn't had those experiences, I think that my working life as an artist would be much less rich. Those things teach me how to how to live life in a different way. They allow me to examine things in a different way, in a better way, in a deeper way. They allow me to go deeper with my work because I've had these experiences of brokenness. And because I believe everyone has brokenness yeah. in their lives, you know, some of, it, some of us are better at hiding it from others than maybe we should be. 
right things if we if we i guess what i'm trying to suggest is maybe we can look at the things in our life that are not perfect in a different way this is what Hephaestus teaches me as an artist to say okay maybe this is not just a liability to me mm-hmm. maybe this is something that can actually make me stronger and make my art better yeah so. you know that that brokenness it's it where where it seems like we're all part of some you know, collective conspiracy to pretend that it never happens. And yet, as you say, we all have our wound in one way or another. The way I'm hearing you, it sounds like the difficult experiences that we have, to put it lightly, provide a lot of insight and sort of raw material for the artistic act in and of itself. Yes. Um. What I was going to add, just reflecting on my own experience, which is that I started making art when I was in a complete crisis <laughs> in my life. There's also a transformation that takes place when you are in touch with that broken part of yourself and you can make something beautiful, um, which may or may not be directly reflecting the material of your problem, but just the, the action of, of, of creating beauty in the face of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. You know, and you can work that out through your creative process often. And just to see something beautiful come out of something that is so broken. I mean, that, that to me is the, the core lesson of Hephaestus, that he could create so much beauty despite his brokenness and his ugliness that is the metaphor for that transformation in one Greek god, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. I didn't realize that he was so marginalized by the Greeks themselves when this pantheon was, you know, something they were actively engaged with. I find that kind of interesting, too, in terms of the position of artists and craftspeople in our culture today. Well, yeah, and he was honored. He was still worshipped by the craftspeople themselves. But the Aristori, I mean, they were the ones that were writing the myths, right? Mm-hmm. And for their own consumption, that's, you know, often in the plays and, and poetry and things. And he was not respected. I mean, Apollo was the idealized Greek male, right? And he's the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. You know, but he still is managing to create so much beauty, and they still want to consume what he creates, right? But they don't necessarily want to worship him or honor him that he was the only one of the Greek gods who managed to get thrown out and still reascend back to Olympus. So I think that that says something about his character as well. Is there anything unique about his style of creativity in terms of what he brought forth? Yes, actually there is one thing that that I would like to mention, and that is he had the ability uh, as a god to bring life to his statues. And so he could create what were essentially automatons or robots, right? Um, he knew how to put life into the things that he created. And the Greeks had a little bit of animism, you might say, around statues. You know, they thought that if you were looking at a statue of Zeus, there was some aspect, some essential part of Zeus was inherent in that statue because it was a statue of Zeus, right? So you've got a little bit of that going on in the culture anyway. But he had that ability that no other Greek god did to build, make these beautiful things. I mean, if he was going to create any kind of human statue or whatever, he could bring it to life 
And there, we, we see these stories throughout his myth of, you know, creating lions at the gateway of a palace, and they would roar and they would guard the palace, you know, so you've got this life that he brings to his art, right? So it's, it's, enga- it's not just something that's beautiful or useful in the sense of a sword or a jewel or whatever, it's got life to it, you know, and to me that is another metaphor for creating, creating any kind of art that is going to resonate with people and speak to them because it's alive, yeah, right. you know, it's making me think of that, um, the metaphor of the spark, the creative spark or art that's got a spark. And then Hephaestus is the god of fire, right? I think he just right. Yes, he is. He's the god of volcanoes and the forge, the fire of the forge. Uh-huh. So it's not necessarily the fire like in the home because that's Hestia mm-hmm. or lightning because that's Zeus, right? So this is this very specific kind of fire. And it's the, the crucible of creation, right? Turning mm-hmm. that brokenness into... Transformate through transformation and into something beautiful requires a great deal of heat. Mm-hmm. Right? So yeah. That's where the metaphor goes a little bit farther. Yeah. What you have to go through in order to do that transformation to manage it. Yeah. Well, right. this is a very rich idea to meditate on. I mean, do you have anything specific that you suggest that people do with Hephaestus and this story? Um, as a way of interacting with it, or is it primarily a process of reflection, do you think, to get his... Well, I mean, that's this is what I do in my workshops, right? I, I guide people through that, and I also provide creativity and myth coaching that I, I will do this with people one-on-one if they want me to. So if, if, you know, people wanted to come to my workshops or whatever, I could help them with that. Or if they wanted to meditate on it, you know, then they can just sort of see what the myth is going to lead them to. You know, this is how, where I've gotten with my meditation on it, and I've, you know, created exercises and things in order to pull that out and explore that a little bit further, and that's what the, what the work is that I do with this myth and many others. Mm-hmm. But I think that if you look at your work metaphorically by looking at the Hephaestus story, you can start to see the ways in which you have to go through that crucible, right? Or what your brokenness can contribute to the work that you're doing, or whatever. I mean, it's that's, to me, the beauty of myth is that it's almost like infinitely down. <laughs> you know, there's always something that uh, someone new can find in it. And that's what I love about working with it is there's insight to be found um, in any myth that you look at it almost. So... Yeah. So if people want me to help them, I'm happy to. Okay, <laughs> if okay. If they want to reflect on the myth themselves, they are welcome to do so as well. Uh, and w- there's one other thing about him that I would like to share. We give, we tend, in, in the myth world, we give Prometheus a lot of credit for being a culture bearer in Greek myth. But Hephaestus has a lot of that going on, too. If you look at the Homeric hymn, there's one, there is one hymn to Hephaestus. And in that space, in this poem, they talk about how he brought the men out of caves and living in caves and in the mountains, and he taught them creative work, and he taught them how to live in culture because of the skills that he gave them uh, in the forge and how to build things. And that is, I think, overlooked sometimes when we look at his story is how much he did to transform Greek culture by teaching them these skills, teaching the, the men of Greece these skills, the metal workers, oh, creating weapons. I mean, you can't have wars without swords, right, at least at that time. So he has a lot to do with Greek culture, and he doesn't always get credit for that. So, Right. No, I didn't know that. You know, I've definitely laid those, um, laid those alms at the feet of Prometheus. But I guess so Prometheus 
gave us fire so that we could build the fire in the cave to cook the meat. <laughs> but there's yeah, a few exactly. more steps between that and actual civilization. And that's right, where absolutely. Hephaestus comes in. Oh, that's very cool. So tell us a little bit about the book that you're working on. Um, okay. Yeah, well, so what it is, is, is I've worked with many different myths from cultures worldwide. I work um, a great deal with the myth of Inanna, which I know you've talked about on your uh, show before. Mm-hmm. I work with myths from Africa, from Native American stories, from Inuit stories, from where, where I grew up in Alaska. I like to look at that. And just from all over the world. And and I find these, there's these, like, these little lessons in them that, that I pull out and help people just to work with whatever aspect of their creative life may need a little bit of attention. And also, again, encouraging people that may not think of themselves creatively to pull that work out of themselves a little bit. So it's usually each chapter is retelling the myth, looking at the metaphor in the myth like we've just done with Hephaestus, and then doing some kind of creative exercise to pull that out personally for the person who's reading it. So mm-hmm. so I'm going to be lecturing. I have lectures set up uh, around the United States in the next few months, and the book is going to be coming out next year. So there will be more information on that on the website, and I, I, I believe you mentioned the Creativity Post yes. earlier. Yeah, so I, I write for a website called the Creativity Post in which lots of people from around, you know, psychologists and uh, evolutionary biologists and artists and CEOs all writing about creativity and how to work with it better in your lives, and I write on myths, so Very there's good. always more information available there as well. So, um, so your, so the book Mythic Creativity: What Myth Can mm-hmm. Teach Us About Our Creative Lives. So it sounds like that's going to be a pantheon, almost, if you will, of some of the u- myths that you have found to be useful in interpreting the various opportunities and challenges of a creative life. Yeah, um, absolutely. Now, is and you've told us a little bit about Hephaestus. I mean, is he kind of your favorite patron, would you say? Or is there actually another mythological figure that you're relating, you relate to the most or maybe are using the most right now in your in your work? Well, I, I've, I work a lot with Inanna. Inanna is personally very important to me. And also the goddess Athena is very important to me as far as the, the Greeks are concerned. I identify very strongly with her. So I have this whole thing on Inanna that is available online for people that want it, but I didn't want to talk about it today because I know you've talked about her in your show before, so I didn't necessarily want to bring that today. But uh, I enjoy the part of her story in which she's at the bottom of her descent, and I think that that's a good metaphor for what the creative journey sometimes requires of us. And uh, Yeah, so if, but as far as the Greeks are concerned, Athena is my patron goddess, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I identify with her strongly. Um, I grew up with a single father, and so the fact that she was born out of the head of her father really resonates with me. And that's, you know, just the way that she approaches life is, is personally very relevant and, and resonant for me. So, mm-hmm. How would you, um, so one of the things that you said back at the beginning of uh, our conversation here was essentially that myths and, the, and these mythological figures are useful to us and to this problem of creativity in an endless, infinite number of ways, because for one thing, 
each of them has a certain mode or way of being creative. And um, so just in contrasting Hephaestus with Athena, to illustrate that a little bit for people, you know, how would you describe Athena's mode? What What is characteristic of her Athenian creativity? Well, she is she is the goddess of wisdom, like in battle strategy, right? So she's she she is the combination of Zeus and Metis, who is the goddess of cleverness. So she is cleverness, sort of being born out of power. When you think about it, uh, because Zeus consumes Metis completely, because he's worried that her second child would throw him, you know, overthrow him in the way that he had overthrown his father, and his father had overthrown his father. So he wanted to stop that. And she is also in charge of a lot of arts and crafts in a, in a similar way to Hephaestus. She's uh, weaving and, you know, any kind of handwork like that. And, and I uh, embraced knitting a few years ago, and this what I learned from the process of knitting is it has this very meditative quality because of the rhythmic nature of it, right? Mm-hmm. And I associate that with Athena very strongly, and it, I think that something about the rhythmic quality of... Um, working with weaving in any kind of way allows you to sort of sink into your psyche a little bit and bring what up, whatever needs to come up from there. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So just yeah. like, <clears throat> like she would, she's a, that side of the creative life of Greeks. You know, we've got Apollo, who's music, right? And he's different, but you know, they're, they're associated with each other, right? So they're, you know, you can almost see the ways in which the Greek gods pair up with each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got Hestia and Hermes who sort of parallel and, and balance each other, and, and you've got a similar thing going on with Hephaestus and Athena, and he doesn't have the wisdom aspect that she does. But if you get further into his story, he was actually married to Aphrodite, and she was having an affair with Ares, and, you know, he traps them, he does all <laughs> So, you know, you've got... That's, and this is the thing about myth, too, is that when you tell one story, you almost always have to tell another one and then tell another, and it just, you just kind of keep going on and on with it because they're all so connected with each other. Right, right, so, right. I'm not sure you've experienced that many times. <laughs> I have. I have indeed. Well, I really I love this idea of the rhythm of the weaving and everything, associating that with Athena, because I, like you, I find myself spending a lot of time with her as the wise woman who's also a very strong, you know, and political, really, in some ways or another. So how can people contact you and tell and what do you have coming up? I know you're you mentioned that you're going to be doing some lecturing around your book. I know you have some workshops coming up. So give us a few of those details and you're starting with your website. The website okay, is So my website is mythicstories.com. Okay. And there's more information there about me, about you know, reaching out as far as if you wanted me to come to your community and speak or do a lecture, there's information for reaching out to me there. I will be lecturing in San Diego in January. So the 15th and 16th of January, I'll be doing a lecture and workshop at the San Diego Friends of Young. And that's available, information is available both on my website and on theirs. I will be in Seattle the weekend before that, the 9th and 10th, and in Boise, Idaho the weekend after that, so the 23rd and 24th, I believe. Uh, And I'm in negotiation with about a dozen more young societies as far as coming to their groups to do lecturing and workshops, and I will be posting that information on the website. There's a lecturing 
uh, speaking engagements page there. So if you're looking for more information about where I'll be, that'll be the place to find it. And the creativity post as well. That's so. great. That's and great. then I do run a blog on Mythic Stories, so there's going to be new material there all the time about what I'm working on at any given moment. So Okay. So and people- I also offer creativity coaching, as I mentioned earlier, so there's information there about how to reach out to me if you're interested in that. That sounds marvelous. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to um, to come on to the program. (laughs) I've learned something, that's for sure. Okay. Glad Um, to hear that, always. That was my special guest, Allison Steger, talking about myth and creativity. And that's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. You can find Myth in the Mojave on Facebook, or you can go to www.mythinthemojave.com to contact me about this program or listen to some of the others. I'd like to remind you that Radio Free Joshua Tree and Myth in the Mojave are made possible by generous donations from Mojave Wi-Fi, Joshua Treats Ice Cream, Pappy and Harriet's, Petersburg Realty, Yucca Valley Hydroponics, and listeners like you please go to our website, www.rfjt.org, and use the handy PayPal donate button. (laughs) I can, yeah, that's a a mouthful. Special thanks to Travis Rosenberg for my theme music and to Rags and Bones for his help producing this program. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week. In the meantime, happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life.